Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm the senior pastor here at LifePoint Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like a little more information about our church, check out lpchurch.us. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning, and I'm excited to uh, kind of wrap this series up. But before we do that, uh, I just wanted to pause and to um, together... Uh, talk about and pray about uh, the tragedy that took place right here in our backyard yesterday. And um, the reality is, as we experience a tragedy like that, all of us come to the table with sort of different backgrounds and different frustration and different confusion over it all. But what I do know as followers of Jesus, as children of God, I want to read this verse and then we're going to do what this verse suggests. In Psalm chapter 50... Verse 15, we are told that this is how people who follow God respond in the day of trouble. And I think we can all agree. We've been reminded this weekend that that's the day in which we live. In the day of trouble, call on me. And I will deliver you. And by calling on me, you will honor me. And so today, I want us to do that. I want us to recognize that we're in a world where there is good and evil. This isn't new. This has been going on from the beginning of time. But we as followers of Jesus, as children of God, we come before him. And the first place we begin is submitting our hearts and minds and lives to him. So here's what I want us to do. I want to ask you, would you stand with me? And I would like for us to pray together. And as we pray together, the reality is we are one community. We are a church community because we're... Um, choosing to be here today, whether you follow Jesus or not. We're also citizens of Collin County together, for the most part, unless you're visiting out of town and we welcome you. Otherwise, we're citizens here together. And so here's what I would like to do, if you're willing. And if you're not, I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. And you certainly have the right to say no. And that is just to hold the hand of the person beside you and let's join hands in this moment, even if you need to reach across or reach down your pew a little further and uh, as we come to this moment, this is a moment for us to be united in heart because we're united under the authority of our God. And so with that said, I want to pray a prayer for our community. Let's pray. Father, I, <clears throat> I know I speak for a lot of people who are kind of exhausted from a shooting, another shooting, kind of confused, especially when it's in our own backyard, there's just a sense of frustration. And I can't imagine what Jesus felt on the cross when he said that he felt forsaken for a moment, when he was overwhelmed with evil and darkness. And I think that we all resonate with that. We just feel overwhelmed with evil and darkness when it's right here. And I think most of us would say that we feel like there is a temptation to give in to this fear and to give in to this uh, dark emotion of, of being so worried about the future and, and, and what does this mean and what's next. And God, I just pray in this moment that you would comfort us as only you can. God, you, you sent your Holy Spirit to be a comforter and to bring us um, a reminder that you are here, you are amongst us, you are, are with us. God, I pray for those who have experienced loss, who wake up today with a whole new reality. 
God, that you would give comfort to these families, to these friends, to those who are young and they experience this, to those who've been uh, in a home with mom and dad watching it on TV and have been exposed and and little uh, pieces of innocence have been chipped away. God, that you would just give comfort. Lord, I pray for healing that only you can give, healing that that is... uh, deep and within and uh, heals the heart that's wounded and that's hardened. God, I pray for healing. And Lord, in these moments, there is a temptation for us to become cynical. God, I pray that we wouldn't lose our grip on hope. God, that you know exactly what it means for there to be darkness. Because in the darkest moment in human history, when people took your perfect son and crucified him on a cross, that you stepped in and brought light to that darkness. And in the same way, God, we ask for light in this darkness that only you can bring. And God, ultimately, we ask for change. Whatever that looks like going forward, God, would you give us wisdom and courage to make the changes that have to be made And at the same time, not lose our dependence on you as the great um, source of sovereign wisdom. God, we need you in these moments. You are our perfect father. You're our perfect God. And we lean on you like never before. May you bless our community. May you heal our community. May you give hope to our community. And may we respond to darkness with light and with grace and bring you Uh, into our conversations with others. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the reality is, one of the things I wanted to say right out of the gate that, that may be good news or it may be bad news, depending on your relationship with God, is that God does care about the details of your life. And some of you are like, well, that scares me to death. The truth is, he does care about the details, and I hope that brings you encouragement because some of us, as we're wrapping up this series and we're talking about making big decisions in our life, sometimes it feels like when it comes to the big decisions that we respond to God and say, I want to know what you think, but the truth is, I just don't know what you think. And I feel a little bit overwhelmed by that. And we're trying to answer this age-old question of how can I know the will of God? It didn't begin with us. This question's been around since mankind has been around. It'll be around way after we're off the scene. It's the question we keep asking. You know, we ask it whether we follow Jesus or not. Because that's why we read, uh, we have palm readers and we have tarot card readers. We have horoscopes and through astrology, we're constantly trying to figure out what is the answer out there in the universe. We're trying to look for different people who have any expertise. We're trying to find out what does God or what do the gods want for me to do. We're looking for this answer because we know there's something more than we know and we aren't sure what the future holds. And so we keep, especially as followers of Jesus, we're in the same boat. We're going, how can I know God's will. And here's the really, really good news, and I hope you've caught this in this series. God does care about you. He does care about the decisions you're making. He does have a vision for your life, and he wants you to know it more than you want to know it. That's the really good news. So here's the review. If you've missed the first three weeks, because today's the final week, we want to catch you up. Practice number one is we suggested that there are guardrails that you can know with absolute certainty. The guardrail of the providential will of God 
and the moral will of God. Meaning, he's going to do this stuff no matter what. He shows us all throughout scripture this is who he is and what he does. And then there's the moral will of God, the things he tells us to do and not do. These are the two known wills of God. They're like guardrails. We drive between those by submitting to both. But if we start violating one or the other, we're outside of the guardrail and we're on the wrong road. Practice number two we looked at, and that is to have an audio map of wise people around us. Proverbs says that there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. We see people who've already gone down the road of the decision you're trying to make on the right road, and God has strategically placed people around you to help you make that decision. And then number three, we looked at last week, is the visual map of the Bible, of God's word. Meaning, when we immerse ourselves in God's word, we make better decisions because there are principles that emerge that lead us down the right road. By the way, last week, there were more than 120 of you who registered for and have been doing the daily reading with us on version. I love that. I love seeing your comments. I love participating in that together. And I think it helps us make wiser decisions when we are on the right road. But having said all that, these three practices lead us on the right road. And once we're doing these three things, we can rest assured that we are doing the primary will of God. Meaning the people who practice this are people who are loving God and loving others. Which is the primary vision God has for your life. Beyond that, do I move here? Do I take this job? Do I, do I buy this do I make this investment? What about you know, how I, my parenting style? Like All these things that are important, God gives a lot of freedom. And now we're trying to figure out what's the right lane or what's the wise lane on the right road. But we gotta start with, am I on the right road? Because here's my fear. More Christians are trying to find the right lane on the wrong road than making sure they're on the right road. And when we're on the right road, I believe God cares more about that than which lane we're driving in. And so what we discovered last week is this. Once you're on the right road, you're practicing these three things, then the, quest, the question shifts to a brand new question. It's not only how can I know God's will, now instead it becomes what is the wise decision? How can I know which lane to drive in? It's kind of like when you plug in you know, the destination on your map app, and then all of a sudden, oh, if you're going to go there, then it's wise to be in this lane because you're going to need to take that exit. If you're going there, then you're going to drive in this lane because you're going to be taking that exit. Once you know the destination, then you can begin to find wisdom. And that's why we're going to talk about something today that is rarely talked about in church or when it comes to our spiritual life. But we're going to see biblically it's very important. That is, one of the ways that God reveals his will is to have a vision or a destination for your life. To have a vision, to know the address. In other words, who do you want to become on the right road in your marriage? What do you want to have accomplished with your parenting or with your career or with your relationship with God? Who do you want to become? What do you want to do? What do you want to have accomplished? Do you have a vision for your life? Now, before we dive in too far, I have to stop right there because what is a vision for your life? 
sometimes we hear what a vision is like this dream that I had or somebody told me something or I just feel the certainty God told me whatever and now I have this vision and if you're new to church you've probably heard Christians say some really weird things in relation to vision or that God told them something and I just want to speak for for me and say in my experience when people say those three words God told me and I am certain alarms go off within me I feel a little hesitant on that and I start kind of even looking for the exit to the building because I'm thinking "Uh uh-oh where's this going to go let me tell you when I'm talking about vision what I'm not talking about because in my own experience I can say that God has never told me something outside of the word that I could say with certainty I heard God and I know for a fact this is what he said in other words I can say for my experience that I can't certainly claim God told me something through a dream, through a set of circumstances, through another person, through my head, through my heart, through my gut, through my spirit, like all those things that we often use. I can say in my 52 years of walking on this planet that the sovereign God of heaven and earth has never come and said with clarity, I know God told me this thing. But what I can say is there have been many times where I sensed God might be telling me something, maybe even felt kind of confident that he probably was telling me something through a strange set of circumstances, through another person, through my head, through my gut, through my spirit, whatever the thing is, I feel maybe he could be, I sense, that's a term I use a lot, whatever, but I I sense God might be whatever it is. I don't want to say it with certainty, Probably every time that has happened in my life, the reason I'm not completely sure that God just gave me a clear vision and I know it was him is because I'm not sure if God is communicating with me or if it was the spicy pasta primavera I had the night before. But I felt something. I just can't be, and here's the thing, I think that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. You know why I say that? Because of Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, My heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can understand it? And for me to claim that when I want something or I think something, to put in perspective, oh, that's right, but I got to remember, my heart is deceitful above all things, beyond cure. Who can know it? History is full of people, well-meaning people, who make a claim that God told me something and later they're able to confess, I must have misheard. I'm no longer as certain as I once was. And that's where I think caution is important. In fact, there was a story I read just this week of a young pastor who again meant very well. He was visiting a young family in the hospital and the little girl had leukemia and as he's walking down the hallway he's praying actually he's begging God to heal this little girl and on the way he became certain that God told him that he was going to heal her and so he walked into the room with mom and dad and he walked over to pray over this little girl and after he was done praying over this little girl He looked at the father and he looked at the mom and said, I can now say with confidence God is going to heal her because he's told me that he would. 
And all you have to do is have faith. All you have to do is believe. And then he went home. And two weeks later, that little girl died. And a few years later, this young pastor walked into a local pizza hut and he sees this dad and he reaches out his hand to shake his and the dad didn't respond. Instead, he just stared at him and tears filled his eyes and then he slowly walked away. And this young pastor meant well. He wanted his God to heal her. He believed that God could heal her, but he took it a step further and said, I believe I can say God told me And it created an injury. And this is where God says repeatedly throughout Scripture, don't take my name in vain. Meaning don't forge my endorsement on something you want. I don't have the authority to do that. I've got to have an open hand in this life, don't we? And recognize there's a lot of things I don't know. I've got the guardrails, the providential and the moral will of God. But that unknown stuff in between the lanes, I better not claim that I have some kind of insight that God hasn't given me the right to have. And that means I can say I sense, and here's why, here are the specific reasons, but I can't say God told me. For me, when I hear somebody say that, alarms go off. I wanna hold that with, I wanna hold that with what I would call as courageous uncertainty, that I trust my God's big enough, even with the things I don't yet know. So, with all that said, I believe God gives us beautiful, beautiful pathway that does include a vision. But I'm not talking about a dream. I'm not talking about something that we know for sure. So, well, then, Mark, what are you talking about? Well, here it is. A vision is simply a preferred future. Now, you do this in your professional life all the time. You have a vision for where you want the company to go. You don't know for certain it's going to go there, but this is where you would like it to go. In the same way, God gives us the wisdom within the guardrails of his providential moral will of God to have a vision for where we want our marriage to go, where we want our relationship with God to go, what kind of life I want to live with the years I have left, what is it I want to see as a preferred future, and when I identify that, then with wisdom, it will help me discern which lane to drive in. A preferred future. Why is this so important? Because the clearer your vision, the more specific you are, the fewer your options, just kind of keeps whittling down, and then the better your decisions. The clearer your vision, the fewer the options, and the better your decision. And I want you to see this guy in scripture who did exactly that, and we're gonna see the power of a clear and specific vision. If you got your Bibles, we're gonna turn to Nehemiah chapter six. And if you're looking at the Pew Bible there, I'm so glad that you are. You may wanna look up the table of contents and find Nehemiah, you kinda go halfway in the Bible, With Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to go left about three or four books and you're going to find Nehemiah. We're going to look today in chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6. This guy, Nehemiah, if you're unfamiliar with him, was a cupbearer, meaning he would taste and serve the drink at the king's table. It was a pretty cool job, right? And he was a really trusted person. And all of a sudden, Babylon had taken the nation of Israel for 70 years in captivity. Finally, the Persian Empire overtook Babylon and now they're free to return. Nehemiah had heard that his own homeland in Jerusalem, the city, had the wall had begun to deteriorate and begin to fall. He said, what's the big deal about the wall? Well, in ancient world, the wall was your defense. And so he knew that his people, his city was defenseless against the non-Jewish neighbors. 
And so he decided to lead an effort back in his homeland to rebuild the wall. This was his vision. I am going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. One simple sentence, he had it. That's what he was going to do with the rest of his time. And out of his brokenness, his heart broke, his vision was born. And this is a key principle we'll see in Scripture, and that is vision is born where your heart breaks. Some of you are ministering right now because of past hurt. It's led you to a ministry that you are in right now. If you're wondering what your vision is, you often can measure your heart and where you have had hurts. And often vision will birth out of where your heart breaks. Now, Nehemiah is there. He's ready to rebuild the wall. By the way, it's so cool. Back in 2007, uh, archaeologists actually excavated part of this wall, accidentally stumbled upon it. It was buried, and they, they're digging deeper and realize, oh, this is actually... Uh, from around 450 BC, which by the way is exactly when Nehemiah was there. They find this wall. They're like, what is this about? They read the Bible story and like, oh, this matches it perfectly. I love how science continues to confirm the accuracy of scripture. Well, Nehemiah goes there to rebuild the wall and when he does, some people try to distract him. He's got one vision, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And as they try to distract him, his vision led him forth. So if you're here, and you're trying to make a decision, you're not sure what it is you need to do, you're about to see an ancient story that shows how much a really clear vision can help you make better decisions. So let's look at the story real quick together. Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, really cool names, by the way, if you're looking for your kids or grandkids, suggest some names. Here are three pretty good ones, so just kind of keep that in mind. The rest of our enemies that I, Nehemiah, had rebuilt the wall, and he's so proud of it, he says, and there's not a gap that was left in it, though up to that time I had not yet set the doors and the gates. So at least he's honest. And then watch what happens. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Remember, he's got one vision. I'm going to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And these two guys come up to distract him, and they say, come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Well, it seems like a harmless enough invitation, doesn't it? But because of his vision, Nehemiah knows, and here's the rest of that verse, yeah, but they were scheming to harm me. Little rascals are trying to scheme to harm him. He's like, no, 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 I know what you're about. You're not trying to invite me to coffee at Starbucks. This isn't a cool little meeting. You're actually trying to distract me from the thing that I know God has given me a vision to accomplish. And he's very intentional. In fact, you're about to see how his vision causes him to be single-minded. And because of his vision, he knew what to say yes to and he knew what to say no to. It acted as a filter for his decision-making. Now that's a gift once you have the vision. Look at the next part of the verse. You're gonna see how single-minded he is. So, Nehemiah speaking, I sent messengers to them with this reply. In fact, would you just say this gold part, uh, this highlighted part, say it out loud with me. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Like there's just a, no, that is not part of my vision, so that helps me know to say no to this invitation. I won't be meeting you for that. I won't be doing that. I won't be taking time away to do the thing that you claim is a simple invitation. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? This is my vision. It's the main thing. I don't, do, I don't say yes to everything. I have a vision. I know where, where it is I'm supposed to go. And then watch this. They were relentless. He says, four times they sent me the same message. Hey, did you get our invitation? Did you get our invitation? Like, we're still inviting you. 
And each time I gave them the same answer. Like he is consistent. Now remember I said I had a vision? I still have that vision. That is what's causing me to say no to this. Okay, but what about now? No, no, no. I still have the same vision. He's very clear, isn't he? Now what I love is, if you take the New American Standard Version of the Bible, it takes this word, this this part that we've highlighted and it just makes it a little more memorable and transferable and it says I am doing a great work and I cannot come down now when you have a vision this is the gift for you to be able to say no to things that would distract you I am doing a great work and I cannot come down would you just say this out loud with me say it with me I am doing That's awesome. At least half of you said it. And the half of you who said it were being very kind to me. I am doing a great, yeah, I got it, all right. I would say you did a mediocre work, okay? Now let's do a great work together. Say it using your out loud voice. Ready, say it with me. I am doing a great work and I cannot, uh, thank you for at least playing along. I love that, it encourages me. So I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. This is a prayer that some of us need to memorize. Some of us who are parents and grandparents. And when you're praying over your children as they sleep, and you're tempted to be busy about that new hobby or that new opportunity that's being on your calendar and you're like, you know, that would be kind of fun. That would be kind of fulfilling. I think I would like to go and spend time even though it's gonna take time away from these kids or get away from these grandkids. We need to pray this prayer. Say it out loud with me. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Some of you, God has blessed you with resources and you're uh, investing into the kingdom and all of a sudden there are gonna be other opportunities that come your way and they're gonna look like opportunities but they may very well just be temptations. They may be your sand ballot, your geshom. And when that happens, you need to pray. Say it with me. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Some of you are married and as a married spouse, you are committed to your spouse and you're gonna look and you're gonna have a former relationship reach out to you and when they do, you will look down on that caller ID and see their name and when you do, pray this prayer. Say it with me. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. This is the power of vision. When you have a vision for where your preferred future is, then you're then free to say no to good opportunities because you're focused on a great opportunity ahead of you. You can say no to good work because you have been given great work and that is where you are headed. And just like individuals like Nehemiah have a a, a clear vision and many of you have shared different parts of your life where you have a vision, I love that. God has given uh, Ginger and I certain areas of our life where we feel like we have some clear direction on what we want as a preferred future, it's so helpful. As a church, we have the same. We have a preferred future. We have a vision that helps lead us. And I wanna share it with you in just a minute, but first I wanna remind you of what our mission is because our conversation has to always start there. Our mission here is to share Jesus and build believers. Four words, 
because I have a short memory and I like less words, I can remember it. Share Jesus, build believers. Here's the reality. This, in my opinion, should be the mission statement of every evangelical church. You can reword it however you want. It doesn't have to be these four words. But it's a restatement of the Great Commission. It's what Jesus told us to be about the two sides of the discipleship coin, that we're to baptize and we're to teach. We're to share Jesus and we're to build believers. And so this is what we want to do for the rest of our lives. This is what I believe is the right road for every evangelical church between the providential and the moral will of God the right I would call it the great commission highway this is the mission of the local church to be making disciples through baptizing and teaching through sharing Jesus and building believers this is the right road this is the non-negotiable for every evangelical church to be about this mission but within that great commission highway there are a lot of lanes in which you can drive This is the preferred future based on the church, based on the gifts, based on the community, based on the history, based on the the leadership. All these things come together to help you identify the lane that the church should drive on within the Great Commission Highway. Our mission, share Jesus and build believers. And the lane that we have chosen, the lane on that Great Commission Highway that we are driving is our vision. It's the lane within the road. And the vision is where anyone can belong before they believe. They say, well, where do we get that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. I would love to show you where in scripture we get that because I believe this is the heart of our Savior. This is the heart of Jesus. Whenever we see in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, we're going to look at it in just a second. But what happens is there's this great meal happening where Jesus has a table And around that table sit tax collectors, sinners, and his disciples. And they're all gathered there to have a meal because they're all there for Jesus. And in response to that, it's the religious onlookers who see this conversation and it offends them that he is allowing the tax collectors and the sinners to sit at that table. And their response is so telling. In Mark chapter 2, verse 16, it says, They, the religious onlookers, asked Jesus' disciples, why does he, Jesus, eat with the tax collectors and sinners? You know why they were offended? Because there was no category of sinner that was more offensive to a first century audience, a first century Jew, than tax collectors. They were the ones who had betrayed their own countrymen by being an oppressed people, by aligning themselves with the Roman Empire and even profiting from their own countrymen in aligning themselves as tax collectors. It was the most emotionally repulsive or offensive sinner. And that's why they weren't just called sinners, they had their own category. Like you know you're offensive when you get your own category. You're not just a sinner, no, you're a tax collector and then there's the rest of the sinners. But you're special in that you're that offensive. And the question that I would have for you is, what is the most offensive sinner to you and to me in the 21st century? We probably would all answer that differently. And what we learn from this is they were invited to the table of Jesus. And they were so offensive that the religious onlookers said, why are they allowed here? They were the they in the religious audience's mind. And Jesus hears them ask this question and watch how he responds in verse 17. Jesus responds and says, well, don't forget, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
And then he goes on to say, I have not come for the righteous. I have come for the sinners. That we are all sinners in need of a savior. And the hope of everyone around that table was Jesus. And the hope of anyone who could walk through these doors, including us, is Jesus. And we don't bring anything to the table, do we? We're just simply pointing to him, as the disciples did in the first century. And so we look at that and we continue to see that there's a principle throughout the life of Jesus where he would say, leave the 99 and go after the one who is lost. He would also say, heaven rejoices more over the one who repents than the 99 who don't need to repent. He would also say that he came to seek and to save the lost. And so we recognize that we want to be a place where anyone can belong. This is a table that anyone can come as long as we keep pointing to Jesus as the hope, as the hope and the way and the salvation. He is the one in whom we put all of our hope. And the best part of me, I had nothing to do with. It's all about him. So our vision is to create a place where anyone can belong before they believe. Here's the really good news. That means your neighbor, your neighbor who's struggling with an addiction, well, they can belong here. Your coworker who's struggling with some kind of failure, maybe it's some kind of moral failure in their marriage or in their life, well, they can belong here. Your family member who's wrestling with doubt and they're, they're now saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to identify more as an agnostic or an atheist. They can belong here. They don't have to sneak in and wonder and feel unwelcome. No, this is a place where we can be as trying to be disciples, but so can the sinners and the tax collectors because we recognize we aren't the answer. Jesus is the answer. And this isn't a church for just churched people, this is a church for all people where anyone can belong before they believe. As we elevate him and we point to him as the answer. Now here's why that's so important. Because that will then influence, because it is our vision, it will influence the decisions that we make. It helps us know what is it that we can now respond to. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. If that's our vision, then how does it influence decisions? Because we've made some decisions that a lot of you are just perfectly fine with, but I want you to know the why behind it. So that it's the vision that helps inform the decision. It's why we so emphasize guest services. When people are out there greeting here or at Rock Hill, we want that to be such a great experience because every Sunday is someone's first Sunday to reconsider faith and reconsider church. It's so important that anyone can belong. It's one of the reasons we have non-Christian openers. Uh, what do they do? Life is a highway today. And they're singing the song with whatever band it was that originally came out with that song. Like they're just up here, we're having fun and they're doing that because we want this to be a place as people are walking in, they can unfold their arms. Hey, we're normal like you are. We live in the same world you live in. We want you to be able to come in and then I'm gonna get up and we're gonna do a welcome and the service will begin and we're gonna worship our God together. We want this to a place where anyone can belong before they believe. In the same way, it's one of the reasons why I teach the way that I teach. 
We call it double barrel teaching, but what we mean is we want this to be a place where you can receive something of the, of the word of God that you didn't maybe know or be encouraged, but in the same way, someone who is new will also be talked to. So we'll always try to recognize unchurched people in the room, and we'll also try and be intentional about giving the background to a character or to a story so everyone can come along and be part of the journey so that when you bring your neighbor they aren't sitting there thinking, well, these people know something I don't know and I can't get what they seem to be appreciating about that scripture today. It's also why our children's ministry moved from back there to up here because we recognize it's fine for us to be back there, but for a lot of our guests who come in and they walk by a whole bunch of empty rooms, well, that's not creating a very compelling environment. In the same way, whenever we moved our students to Sunday nights at 4 o'clock, it's because we recognize that, yeah, we could definitely continue to do it on Sunday mornings, but everybody's competing for the same resources. And what happens is a lot of our adults who want to be over there can't be over there on Sunday mornings. So there's only two or three students or two or three adults who are over there. But when we do it on Sunday nights, we're now having a dozen to 15 adults over there who are pouring into the next generation. We want our students to also have a place where anyone can belong before they believe it impacts so many of the decisions that we make. So here's what I want you to do. Would you just say this out loud with me? Here's our vision. Life point, go the previous slide there. Would you just say this out? Say that with me. Where anyone can belong before they believe. Based on Math or Mark chapter two, we see the result of Jesus teaching this principle throughout his life. Now, by the way, the next couple of weeks is a great time to invite somebody. We've got Mother's Day next week. As Isaac said, a lot of gifts that will be given out to all ladies, whether they're mothers or not. We want to honor them. Also, two weeks from today, we begin a brand new series called Twisted, where we're going to look at the most misused verses in the Bible. That's going to be a lot of fun. So on your way out today, we're actually giving you these cards for both campuses, both service times that you can take. And we just want to encourage you to give that to someone and invite them next week whether they believe or not, we would love for them to be here. Bottom line is, the clearer your vision, the fewer your options, and the better your decision. So how about you? Do you have a clear vision for your future? Maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your parenting, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your relationship with God. I love what um, Rick Warren in his book, uh, Purpose Driven Life, he talked about the acronym of SHAPE. And he just says, when you're trying to discover the vision for your life, here are just some practical areas. What are your spiritual gifts? What are you passionate about with your heart, your own abilities, your personality, or maybe your own experiences may help you discern those things. But at the end of the day, the clearer the vision, the fewer your options, and the better your decisions. So let me give you some closing practical steps you can take. Number one, would you just pray and ask God to give you a vision? For the primary areas of your life, you might take one at a time. I'm going to start with my marriage. I'm going to start with my parenting. I'm going to start with a grandparent. I'm going to start with my relationship with God, my business, how I want to, who I want to become, what I want to have accomplished, and pray, God, would you help me sense something that excites me and maybe even scares me a little? And once you have that vision, then I would encourage you to take this next step and just write it down somewhere. Keep it super simple. I would encourage you to keep it to one sentence so that if you're like me, you can remember it. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons we gave out the merchandise to start with. We want to keep this in front of people where you can belong before you believe. And then make it a filter for your decisions. Maybe you make an Etsy sign, maybe you frame it, but some way that you can memorize it going forward. Well, today as we wrap up this message, we also are wrapping up this series. IDK, A Guide to Better Decision Making. And I hope it's been helpful. That's my hope. But I also recognize you may have come with a specific decision that you are wanting to make. 
Do I marry her? Do I buy that? Do I take this job? Do I move here? And you may come and walk away going, you know, I feel a little, you know, like emotionally unsatisfied because you never gave me the answer to the thing I really wanted to know. And you may have been wanting even a simple three-step process to knowing specifically every question that you've had. Like you want the answer to that. And if that was your desire, then I could certainly see why you might be a little disappointed. But here's what I want to resist, not only in this series, but in general. There is a temptation with these kinds of big topics to sometimes take God and make him smaller so that I feel better when I leave with two or three steps that I can take, but I've also limited the size of my God. And I just want to say with a topic like this, God doesn't fit into a nice tight box and he rarely does the same thing twice the same way. So I want to hold it with an open hand and say there are definitely some principles that he gives us that we can practice, but we don't fail to continue to trust in him for all the things we don't know and we don't fully understand. I was reminded of that this week. I had lunch with uh, my friend Roger who attends LifePoint. And uh, I was talking to Roger. I said, Roger, uh, you and Susan have a great marriage. You have raised three great sons. You have a successful business. Uh, More importantly, you and Susan love God and love others. I said, Roger, be honest with me. Did you have one of those like master plans when you were young? Are you one of those guys? You know, kind of irritate the rest of us. Did you, were you one of those guys? Or, or better yet, did you have a burning bush experience along the way that made it crystal clear and, you know, the rest of us don't necessarily get that? And I just kind of wanted to be frustrated with him. Can you tell? Like, I'm just like, tell me what it is, Roger. I know, I know you got something. And he laughed. He goes, no. He goes, it wasn't anything like that. He said, the, the, the truth is, <clears throat> we had a lot of twists and turns. I was fortunate, he said, to have some mentors, and we prioritized church, we prioritized our faith, but there were a lot of things I didn't know what God was up to, and there were a lot of unexpected, there were some disappointments, and there were frustrations, and frankly, there were a lot of restarts along the way as well. And he said, I never had a burning bush experience. And then he gave me a baseball analogy that I had never heard before, but it was helpful to me. He said, I am not sitting here before you as one of those guys who hit one of those beautiful home runs and the crowd cheered and the fireworks went off that's not how I scored that's not how my life went he said but instead I'm one of those guys who stood up to bat and I kind of half swung my bat and I accidentally hit a bloop single and then there was an error I stole third and then there was a pass ball and somehow I got home and he kind of laughed he goes but somehow I scored a run and he said and God was with me the whole way And I thought, now I can relate to that, at least the error and the pass ball part. The rest of it, I don't know that I've even got that figured out. But he said, but what I do know is that whatever wisdom God put around me, I would would be thirsty and I would grab it. And then there was a lot of open-handed, God, what's next? And we'll just trust you because there was a lot of unknown too. And I feel like that's the balance that we want to strike as followers of a sovereign God that there's a whole lot of wisdom around us and we want to practice these things we've been talking about and at the same time we have a very open hand recognizing God you know things I'll never know. Your thoughts are not my thoughts and your ways are not my ways and I balance what I know with a God who I completely need with what I don't know. In fact I think that sometimes I want life to be a straight easy pathway And I don't know about you, but this image always captures what I think our lives actually look like. I want this, and we get that, right? It feels like, wait a minute, I thought I was finally going downhill again, and boom, there's something else unexpected. Well, we get there, but it's not quite like I looked 
or thought that it would look. This is why I believe God's greatest goal for you and for me is that we grow in our trust of him. Even when, as we sang a while ago, we don't see him working, even when I don't feel him working, we continue to trust. With the unanswered questions, with tragedy like last night, we continue to push forward and lean into him. Why? Why? Because that is the fear of the Lord. For us to recognize with awe, with obedient awe, I have a humble confidence that I can come back before you again and you will see us through onto the other side. And that's why in our memory verse that talks about the need for wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord. That's where knowledge begins. So let's close with that memory verse one last time. Proverbs chapter one, verse seven says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, 7. You guys were already ready to say it out loud with me. Go ahead, now let's say it together. Say it together. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, 7. This is the last part of this series, so by now you've got it memorized, so to really give you the opportunity to show that off without help of the screen, say it with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, 7. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. Way to go. All right, would you do this? Would you all stand with me as we close our service together? I just want to offer one final prayer. Let's stand. God, I thank you so much for this church, for these people. Lord, whatever is on the heart, as I heard people coming in today, there again is so much loss that people have experienced in the recent days, uh, family members. And God, I would sometimes imagine if we could see the hurt in every heart, it would just be overwhelming. God, thank you for being a comforter for us, for walking with us. I pray peace. I pray your presence for each of these people who are hurting today. And for all of us who are trying to make decisions, trying to make wise decisions, may we be on the right road and once we are, look for ways of wisdom which begins with a vision that's clear of where we want to go and who we want to become. May we courageously step forward even with courageous uncertainty and it all begins by fully trusting you. God, I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you, and we will see you next Sunday.